0: Hey there, humanoids, this is David Shoemaker here with a very exciting announcement. Your favorite wrestling podcast feed, The Ringer Wrestling Show, is now going daily. And you can hang out with me and Kaz on Mondays and Thursdays for The Masked Man Show. And
1: you can join me, Peter Rosenberg, alongside Stack guy Greg and Dip every Tuesday
2: with
0: Cheap Heat. And on Fridays, I'll welcome a friend or special guest from the world of wrestling. And on Wednesdays, we have a very special new show called Wednesday Worldwide that you're going to want to check out.
1: Pay-per-view reaction, one-of-a-kind interviews, fantasy booking, talking about
0: bagels, that's what we do here on The Ringer Wrestling Show. Follow the show now on Spotify and do us a favor. Give us five stars. And do us another favor and uh, stay mage.
3: See website for details.
0: Welcome into off the pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to be joined by Ann Cundal, Director of Scouting from SoxProspects.com. In just a little bit, we'll get into what an absolutely miserable day at Fenway on Sunday. Obviously, the weather was disgusting to begin with, but what we saw in the field was that was flat out embarrassing for the Red Sox. And now we've seen this all season long where the defense has been really, really bad for this team. So we'll get into the current state of the team. With the end, also get into, of course, they do a great job at socksprospects.com on the big guys coming up in the organization. So I do want to get to Marcelo Mayer with him as well. But I want to start with the Celtics, and I have sort of a thought on Jalen Brown and this whole idea of giving him the Supermax or not, and a few possible Jalen trades as well. And then I want to get into some interesting comments that Danny Ainge made recently to Dan Shaughnessy of the Globe. So I just have my concerns, and I kind of hinted at this the other day on the pod with KOC, but the reasons I have concerns with giving Jalen Brown the supermax, and I'll sort of do a metric man breakdown of why this is concerning. Okay, so I want to know that when my best player is off the court, that my second best player, in this case, Jalen Brown, can carry the offense, right? And that has to be a concern because what we've seen from Jalen Brown, he has not really been able to do that, especially this season. If you look at it, and I'm looking at the regular season, so there are a lot of nights during the regular season, as we know, where you're playing a lot of bad teams in the NBA. So if you take sort of the guys who have been the three best players on the Celtics this season, or were the best three players, because the season, of course, is over, as we all experienced in Game 7. So Jason Tatum on the court without Jalen Brown and Derek White. The Celtics had a 121.1 offensive rating. Really good. They outscored teams by 13.9 points per 100 possessions. So that is 2.5 points better. That 121.1 I alluded to, that is 2.5 points better than the best offense in the league this season. So Tatum, without the second and the third best player on the team... Still generates an offense that would have ranked better than the best offense in the NBA this season. That's how good Jason Tatum is, and that's how much he means to the offense. Okay, let's take Derek White. When he's on the floor and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are off the court, so we would say, hey, the first and the second best players on the team, how are the Celtics with Derek White on the court? Well, a 116.4 offensive rating, they outscore teams by 11.2 points per 100 possessions. So that 116.4. That would be better than all but five offenses this season. So a top six offense in the NBA when Derek White is on the court without your two all-stars. That's pretty impressive for Derek White, right? And so how about Jalen Brown? Well, the offense with Jalen on the court and Derek White and Jason Tatum off the court is a 111.6. They were outscored, by the way, the Celtics were, by 6.74 points per 100 possessions. They had a terrible defensive rating as well. So that 111.6 offensive rating with Jalen on the court without the first best player in Jason Tatum and the third best player in Derek White, that 111.6, you know how many teams were worse than that this season? Five. The Orlando Magic, the Houston Rockets, the Detroit Pistons, the Spurs, and the Charlotte Hornets. So a team that has the sixth pick of the draft in the Orlando Magic and four teams that were battling for the number one pick in terms of the lottery balls. That's how bad... The Celtics were with Jalen Brown on the court without Jason Tatum and without Jalen Brown. They played like one of the worst six offenses in the entire NBA. So Jason Tatum without White and Brown, better than the league's best offense. Derek White without Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, hey, the sixth ranked offense in the NBA, that's pretty good. Jalen without Tatum and Derek White, the 25th best offense. So this is where I keep coming back to this whole idea with these financial obligations that you're going to have to make to Jason Tatum because you know next offseason, you're putting the Supermax in front of that guy. There's no debating that whatsoever. But also, if you sign Jalen to this long Supermax contract extension as well, you're going to have to put more on your best players, right? Like when those guys get those contracts, you're expecting more from both Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And I'm not even talking about next year or the year after that, right? Because you'll be able to keep most of the core together over the next couple of years. Most of these guys are under contract with the exception of Grant Williams. But eventually, you're going to start losing good role players because of how expensive this team is going to get. So this may be the most talent we see around Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. So we have years of evidence that tell us that Jalen Brown cannot be a good hub of an offense. And are you going to be willing to pay that type of money when you know when Jason Tatum goes to the bench and Jalen Brown's out there, and if Derek White's on the bench too, Jalen Brown cannot generate good offense by himself like Jason Tatum can, and to a lesser extent, like Derek White can. So it's just a lot of dough. So why is this the case? Why isn't the offense good when Jalen's running things, right? So we know he's not a good distributor, and he turns the ball over a lot, right? And he's just, he's really not a good passer. He's not good at sort of reading the defense. And so if you look at it, in terms of the top 15 players in the NBA this year in usage rating, by the way, Jalen was 12th at 31.4%. So out of those top 15 players in usage rating this season, you know where Jalen Brown ranks in assist percentage? Last out of that group. 15th out of those 15 players at 16.5%. And essentially what that means is that's the percentage of field goals a player assisted on while he's on the court. So Jalen's at 16.5%. No other player is at 20%. So he doesn't create offense for other people. That's part of what Tatum does well, right? Where And look, I'm not telling you Tatum's a perfect player. We've seen him have issues throughout the postseason. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But what Tatum does really well is setting things up for other guys. He's improved immensely over the past couple of years doing that, right? Jalen Brown, one of the worst ball-dominant guys in terms of distributing the basketball. He's one of the worst high-volume scorers in terms of his passing ability. He's just not a good passer. He's not a good creator for other people. So what about his assist to turnover ratio? He was at 1.18 this season. For a comparison, Tatum was at 1.61. So that 1.18 from Jalen, that's also the worst of that group of the top 15 players in usage rating. So his assist percentage and his assist to turnover ratio, both the worst out of the top 15 players in the NBA in usage rating. So that's why you're seeing all these other guys across the NBA that are top 15 in usage rating. When they're on the court, their offenses are really good. With Jalen, it's the opposite because he's not a good p- passer and he turns the ball over a lot. Okay, so he's not a creator. Also, he's not a consistent threat from three-point territory. Jalen shot 35.8% from deep two years ago. That number was down to 33.5% this past season. That 33.5% ranked 130th out of 149 qualified players. Players this season. So if you think about it from that perspective, it's not going to get much better. So yes, Jalen Brown's a very good mid-range shooter. I outlined that throughout the season, but he does not get to the free throw line either. Just 5.1 free throw attempts per game. And part of that is he's not a very good free throw shooter, as we all know. The only other player in the top 15 in scoring this season that attempted fewer free throws than Jalen Brown was Kyrie Irving, who obviously we know, even though we don't like Kyrie, Kyrie is a significantly better shooter than Jalen Brown. He's also tiny, right? For an NBA player, the guy's like six foot one. So he's not going to get to the line nearly as much as Jalen Brown should be getting to the line. So out of the top 15 scores, doesn't get to the free throw line. Okay. Now, I'm not trying to say it's all bad with Jalen. He's a really, really good player. I'm just talking, we're talking about the super max. We're talking about paying him almost $300 billion, right? So if you look at this, he does do a good job getting to the paint, 13th in, points per game in the paint this season, 12.5. That's great. So- I'm not just trying to highlight all Jalen's flaws. I'm just saying he's an explosive player. He can be a good shot maker. But when I'm talking about a super max contract, I'm looking at a player, to summarize Jalen here, that is not a creator on offense, especially for other people. He's not a good passer. He has turnover issues. And he's not a good three-point shooter. And I mentioned that free throw line stuff. Part of it is he doesn't get to the free throw line probably as much as he would like to because he's afraid to get there. You look at his percentage. He shot 76.5% this season. In the postseason, that was at 68.9%. And remember, he missed one of two late in Game 6. Earlier this season, go back to the Julius Randle game where Julius Randle's laughing at him. He's missed a lot of big free throws. So this is where the Celtics find themselves. It's tough to justify giving that type of money to a player with those flaws. I would feel uncomfortable doing that, right? I'm just looking at this objectively. I love Jalen. I love what he's meant for the organization and all that. I would just have a really difficult time doing it. But here is the problem for the Celtics. What is your solution? What is your answer if you decide not to give Jalen the Supermax? Because the Celtics, they don't have any leverage here. The other team that would be making a trade for Jalen has to have the assurance that Jalen, of course, is going to stay there long term or else there is no reason for them to give up a lot to bring in a guy like Jalen Brown, right? So what because it's not a Kawhi Leonard situation where you rent Kawhi Leonard for a year in terms of he had one year remaining on his contract when he goes to Toronto. You know, he's one of the best players in the NBA. Jalen's not that type of player, right? So what I think is the most likely outcome for the Celtics, even though I just said all this stuff about the concerns I have about Jalen as a player, I believe the most likely outcome is the Celtics will make that offer of the Supermax. Now, they can try to like find out through his agent, like, hey, is he going to be willing to play ball a little bit here? I'm pretty sure what the agent's going to say, no, give us the Supermax contract. We know about all the calluses that have been built up, so to speak, with the issues with the Kevin Durant trade rumors, which obviously really irritated Jalen Brown, and we've seen the quotes in the articles over the past couple of months as well. He's going to want that Supermax extension. So that's what I believe happens that Jalen gets the Supermax, despite all the concerns I have. And we've seen this throughout the league. It really hurts your organization if you give a guy a Supermax that isn't worth a Supermax. Think about the Washington Wizards with Bradley Beal. He should not be on that contract. Bradley Beal is not one of the 10 best players in the NBA. So that contract hurts that organization. We've seen it throughout the history of the league recently. Russell Westbrook, that contract hurts his organization in the past, right? You can't give this money away to guys that are top 10 because it's more—the guys are not top 10, I should say, because it's more difficult to build your team if you're giving that type of money to Jalen Brown. Now, the good thing for the Celtics is this. Even if I think this is an overpay for Jalen— you're still going to have a guy that's better than him. So that's the one thing that the Celtics have that a lot of these other teams that have given out these supermax don't have. Like the Washington Wizards give Bradley Beal a supermax. They don't have a guy that's better than him. At least the Celtics have that in Jason Tatum. But man, just based on, it's really tough for me to look at this objectively for a guy that doesn't really give us much from an impact metric standpoint and say, hey, want to give this guy a supermax contract. It's just a difficult spot for the Celtics to be in right now because we know Jalen, He ain't going to play ball. Now, here's the good thing. We know this team is close to a title, and they may just do it next year, right? They may, with this group, win a championship next season. It's definitely not out of the realm of possibilities. But if you don't win a championship with this group, I truly believe that you're going to look back and say, that contract was not worth it. And maybe it ends up at a trade down the road with Jalen Brown. But it's going to be something that we look back at in terms of sort of A turning point one way or or another for the organization, either, hey, they gave Jalen the Supermax, they won an NBA championship, this is all great, or, hey, you know what? They gave Jalen a Supermax contract, it didn't work out, they couldn't surround Tatum and Jalen Brown with enough, or Jalen didn't live up to the contract, they never won a championship. I really think that this is a huge pivotal moment for the organization. Now, I do want to get to this on the Jalen front. One trade I'm really interested in now is I was listening to group chat, of course, our buddy Justin Verrier, who came on after a couple of the playoff games. We've had him on the pod a bunch of times. He threw out an interesting name. So he basically suggested Jalen Brown swap him with Cleveland for Darius Garland or swap him with Cleveland, Darius Garland. So Jalen goes to the Cavs, plays with Donovan Mitchell, who, of course, he's buddies with. And then the Celtics get Darius Garland, an elite point guard in return. OK. And the reason this is intriguing to me is the Cavaliers... They're missing a wing. That was their weakest spot this season. They did not have a wing and they desperately needed a wing. They were playing the Isaac Okoros of the world, the Karis Leverts of the world in big playoff moments, right? They started Karis Levert in the postseason, right? So they may say, hey, let's go Donovan Mitchell. Let's go Jalen Brown. And we got our two big guys, right? When we're talking about the Jared Allens, the Evan Mobleys, we got our two big guys. Now we got our wing. And yeah, okay, we don't have Darius Garland anymore, but we still have Donovan Mitchell and we still have Jalen Brown, two guys that can fill it up. And they may feel good about that. And from a Celtics perspective, you go with Jason Tatum and Darius Garland, where it's like, okay, now you have another creator. Now you have another guy that can make plays for you. Okay. So just to kind of put this into context here, to continue the metric man breakdown of the Jalen Supermax and the Jalen hypothetical trades. Okay. So I was looking at this. Garland this past season was 7th in assists per game, 7.8. He was at 34.1% in terms of that assist percentage on 26.9% usage, so less than Jalen. But the assist, 34.1%, remember we told you where Jalen's was at? 16.4. So significantly better. Like, this is what he does. And this is something the Celtics desperately need. They need more play creation from other people besides Jason Tatum, right? And naturally... He's going to be higher than Jalen because he's a point guard, but we're talking about a massive gap there now. You look at the Cavaliers with Garland on the court this season, 4.4 points better per 100 possessions, okay? That's in the 84th percentile via cleaning the glass in terms of their offense, 18.3 offensive rating with Garland on the court, so an increase of 4.4 points per 100. With Jalen on the court for the Celtics, that number was minus 3.4. So the Cavalier is significantly better with Darius Garland on the court. And if you look at it on the other side of things, the flip side, I should say, with Jalen on the court, the Celtics significantly worse with him on the court, right? So this guy has the ability to generate great offense, unlike Jalen, as I alluded to. That's my chief concern is he's not a playmaker for other people. That's And he turns the basketball over. He's not a good three-point shooter. All this stuff that Jalen isn't good at. And there's stuff that Jalen is better at than Darius Garland, right? I'm, I'm not saying that Jalen, like... I don't want to get so caught up in this, like people think, oh, you don't like Jalen. I do like Jalen, but I'm talking about for this specific team fitting with Jason Tatum because everything you do organizationally is how does this move affect Jason Tatum? I just look at Darius Garland and I know, look, he's smaller guard. Sometimes you can take advantage of those guys defensively. And if you look at the defense this season for Cleveland, minus one point four points per one hundred possessions in terms of when he was on the court, in terms of the difference. That was in the sixty-third percentile. The Celtics defense was two point eight. Points worse per one hundred twenty six percentile. So, if you look at the defense, like I'm not saying that Garland's the reason that the defense was good for them. Obviously, he's not a great defensive player. The reason their defense was good was Evan Mobley and Jared Allen. But you can say, yeah, Garland's not a great defensive player. Okay, we saw Brunson in that Knicks series take advantage of him, right? But Jalen, it's not exactly like he's a great defender e- either. Nobody's going to confuse Jalen for a great defensive player, right? So. And the thing about Garland, he's a good creator, and we know he's an elite shooter. He shot 41% on threes this season, and on high volume, he took six a game. He shot 39.1% on pull-up threes. He took 233. So it's not like he wasn't taking a lot. He took 233 pull-up threes. He hit 39.1%. That's a really good number. Jalen, meanwhile, yes, good two-point pull-up shooter. I've outlined that all season long. But in terms of the threes, he took 172 pull-up threes. He hit 55. So 31.8%. So you look at Garland compared to Jalen, and I'm talking about fit for this team. It just makes more sense. He's a top-tier pull-up shooter. He's a great playmaker. He can run an offense from a fit perspective that makes more sense with Jason Tatum. So if this trade was presented to me, if I was Brad Stevens, if I was the front office of the Celtics, and look, I am higher on Garland than most. I really like Garland. I feel like every time the Celtics play that guy, he's just really difficult to stay in front of. I feel like he's... Bouncy, gets around, guys. I just love his game. So I would do that if it was me, because I feel like if you're just looking for this team in terms of the fit, Darius Garland makes more sense with the Celtics than Jalen Brown does. If that deal is presented to me, I'm Brad Stevens, I'm doing, okay. Now, this is one other crazy trade I came up with, okay? Not that that one's crazy. That one actually like, okay, you can see that working, right? Like maybe that's presented, who knows? It depends how high, and I'm sure Cleveland's very high on Garland, but you wonder if one team thinks like, if I'm the Celtics, do I need something more than Garland? If I'm the Cavs, do I need something more, like more than Jalen? you got to see like where both teams are at. But I came up with one crazy one. And actually, the boss texted me that this trade is drunk because I sent it to him as well. So it has a lot of moving parts. It's a three-teamer. Okay, so listen up here. Here's the first part of the trade. Jalen Brown and Malcolm Brogdon go to the Orlando Magic. Okay, that's the first part. The Toronto Raptors get Marcus Smart, Robert Williams, and pick 6-11 and from Orlando. Because remember, Orlando has the Bulls pick. The Celtics get Pascal Siakam, Markel Fultz, our old friend, Markel Fultz, Wendell Carter, Jr., and Franz Wagner. Okay, so the Celtics return there. Siakam, Fultz, Carter, Jr., Franz Wagner. So this is basically Orlando saying, hey, we're ready to compete. We hit on Paulo Benquero. We think he's an absolute stud. Let's add an all-star wing in Jalen Brown who can really help this team grow, get us to the playoffs next season. And on top of all that, we get another score in Malcolm Brogdon that can help with our spacing, can help with our shooting, when our two best scorers in that situation, Jalen Brown and Paulo Bancara, are not good three-point shooters. So we have another guy that can space the floor in Malcolm Brogdon. The Raptors say, hey, we're not even a playoff team this past season. We made it to the play and didn't make it into the postseason. Let's build around Scotty Barnes. He's the guy that we drafted high a couple of years ago. We feel like Scottie Barnes can be our pillar going forward. We add a nice young big man in Robert Williams, smart as a throw in there, but can certainly start games for you next season because you're still going to be relatively competitive with this team. And you get, not to say they're making the playoffs, but they're not going to be like one of the worst three teams in the NBA. And you get two picks to help with your future in six and 11. And this is on top of, they already have the 13th overall pick, right? So from a Celtics perspective, you get another wing to replace Jalen and Pascal Siakam, who's a good player. You can argue the two guys if you want to have a debate who's better. Jalen definitely had a better season, but Siakam's got a nice floater game, better defensive player than Jalen is. Neither one shoots the three ball well, but they're comparable players. You could at least have the conversation. Now, if it's me, Jalen's a better player to me, but it's a comparable thing. And Franz Wagner's the really nice young player here. He's the really nice piece in this deal where it's 18 a game this past season and just his second year in the NBA. Fultz, we know he's not a great shooter, but he can do a little bit of ball creation stuff. And the reason they have to give up these other guards. You have to give something in these trades. That's why Smart and Brogdon I have moving in this deal. But per 36 minutes, Fultz was 17 and seven. He's a good playmaker, good in transition, all that. I'm not telling you that this guy's the be-all end-all because you still have Derek White. Derek White's your main point guard now. And Fultz is sort of a secondary guy, maybe come off the bench, whatever you want to do with him. But the point is you get Wagner and you get Siakam. And Wendell Carter Jr. is a really nice big man, can shoot a little bit with. Free throws, that type of stuff. Free throw line jumpers, those type of stuff. Good rebounder, pretty good defensive player. And I like Wendell Carter Jr. as a player as well. And that's why Rob's out, because you got to give something in return with the Rob situation as well. So it's basically Wagner, Siakam, Wendell Carter Jr. and Fultz. I kind of like this idea for the Celtics, right? Even if I think that in a vacuum, Jalen's a better player than Siakam, I'm also getting Wagner as part of the equation. Now, we rarely see deals like this happen, of course. Like This is a massive deal. And it's probably not even going to be even contemplated or discussed anywhere. I just thought that was a fun trade where I think in some ways it makes sense for all teams. The Magic may say, uh, 6-11 seems like a lot for Jalen Brown, right? Like, especially if we're giving up Wagner as well. But it's just a hypothetical trade I came up with. The Garland one is the one I'm really intrigued by. And I thought that was a great idea by Justin Verrier. The other two guys, uh, Rob Mahoney and Big Waz, didn't like that trade. I really like that trade for the Celtics. All right. So let's get to the Danny Ainge quotes from over the weekend with Dan Shaughnessy. He was talking about Joe Missoula, and he says, You see Joe's toughness and stubbornness. He's a relentless worker. He has a passion to learn. Joe is a leader, and I think this was a difficult situation with the high expectations the team had coming in. I don't think there's anybody there that doesn't believe that Joe is better than Ime as a coach. So I was absolutely shocked that he referenced Imei in this article, right? That was the headliner. So obviously, Danny has a background with Joe Missoula, right? He referenced hiring him for the G League team. So Danny obviously thinks very highly of Missoula. but I was wondering why he dropped Ime to Dan Shaughnessy. He didn't have to say anything about Imei, right? Even if he truly believes that. And obviously, he's still very well connected with the organization. His son is in the front office, right? And Danny we all know is a really smart guy. And he knows that this quote that he gives, that Joe Mazzulla is a better coach than Ime is, he knows that's going to be the highlight of the article. How could he not? When you're saying this guy that took the team to the finals last year, when you're saying that the new coach is better than him, this is going to be a massive story. So my idea on this is I think this is a Will Hardy thing. And Danny knows how important Will Hardy was to the Celtics staff last year, right? And if you look at Utah... We all thought they were going to have a really good chance entering the season at that number one pick. So they traded away, we know, Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Great trades for Danny Ainge and great decisions by Danny to do that. But if you look at that Utah team, the reason I point out Mitchell and Gobert is you should suck when you get rid of those two guys, right? Hypothetically, they finished with the ninth best offensive rating in the NBA this past season, the Utah Jazz. And remember, they were like the hottest team in the NBA at the beginning of the season. Everybody was talking about them. And then you look at Laurie Markinen has one of the best year to year improvements we've seen in recent history. Very rare to see this type of jump where the guy goes from 14.8 points per game to 25.6. He's on his third team, right? More than 10 points per game, 49% from the field. And he shot 39.1% from three on a career high in volume at 7.7. And so you turn this guy into a really good player. He was really effective. And remember, this team traded away Mike Conley Jr., their point guard at the deadline. They also traded away Jared Vanderbilt at the deadline. Two good players for them, rotation guys. So they could have been even better than their record was. They could have been even better than that ninth best offense I mentioned. So I think Danny looks at the hire that he made and looks at how good Utah played this year compared to their expectation. And he credits Will Hardy more than Ime for what happened with the Celtics last year. That is my guess on this, right? That he thinks that, Will Hardy was more important to the Celtics last year than Ime, right? So Danny probably believes in Joe Mazzula more than Ime, even if you or I may disagree with that. Like especially, like you got to factor in the motivational tactics of Ime, right? Where Ime didn't give a shit; he'd call everybody out, and clearly the team really respected Ime. It was almost like an intimidation factor in some sense, right? Where the team. When Ime said something, the team listened. Joe didn't really, it felt like, and I'm not saying the guys weren't listening, but Ime had that sort of impact on the team. So even if you think that is the better coach than Joe Mazzulla, which a lot, most people do, right? Even if you think that, you can understand where Danny's coming from, where he probably thinks Will Hardy was more important last year. And he probably believes that Joe's better X's and O's wise, especially when he sees a lot of the stuff that Will Hardy does with taking a lot of threes. We see that with Joe Mazzulla, So he probably really believes that. But I just find it, extremely interesting that Danny actually said that. Like, I can't believe he dropped Emay's name in the article, right? Even if he just wanted to highlight how great of a coach he thinks Joe Mazzulla could be down the road, I'm just shocked that he said the Ime thing. But my other sort of conclusion on this, why did he bring up Ime in this article or when he was talking to Dan Shaughnessy? I thought maybe there is some sense from Danny who worked in that organization so long and, of course, we mentioned his son is still with the organization, Austin Age, right, that he's frustrated with May, right, where he's like, OK, you had this great opportunity with the Celtics, the team that I played for, the team that I ran that organization for so many years. I led to a championship in 2008 as the executive. He's friendly with people in the organization, as we mentioned, like that he probably feels bad for the people that he worked with, and he probably is not a fan of what happened with Ime, and not a fan of Imei in general. So I think that's part of it, too, in terms of he's not afraid to call Ime out because he feels like he, the Celtics still mean something to Danny Ainge, and he feels like Ime completely threw away a great opportunity. So I imagine that's part of it as well. All right, I did want to get to the coaching changes because big change for the Celtics, as Sham Sharani reported late on Sunday night. Sam Cassell is joining Joe Mazula's staff. Paul Pierce basically said this when (laughs) he was on KG show, that he wanted Sam Cassell to join the staff. And I really like the hire because uh, let's go in reverse here because over the weekend, we also got the reporting that Ben Sullivan, Mike Moser, Garrett Jackson joining EME staff. And I don't think anybody was surprised by this. Ben Sullivan, of course, being the big one. And of course, he had a relationship with and he worked with Derek White on his shot. That's been well-documented. And Derek White improved immensely. Went from 30.6% in terms of his three-point shooting to 38.1%. And you rarely see that for a guy of Derek White's age at 28. Now, we'll see this every once in a while in the NBA with older players that just start taking more threes. Like Al Horford never shot threes in Atlanta and the league changed. So we see that from time to time with the older players, but you rarely see that with a guy in Derek White at the age of 28 where he came into the league and it was three-point heavy. So Ben Sullivan deserves a lot of credit there. So that sort of – that was unfortunate for the Celtics that they lost him. So you felt what the Celtics are going to do was what Brad Stevens sort of indicated at his exit press conference where he said, hey, we want to add somebody with experience that can help Joe. And not help Joe, but somebody with some real experience in the NBA. And so I felt like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. Remember last year they tried to do this with the Jay Jay Laranega situation where they tried to get Jay Laranega back. Of course, he had familiarity with Brad Stevens because he was on Brad's staff, and he ends up staying with the Clippers. But that was a thought at that particular point in time. Remember, people put out there, hey, could he go after Frank Vogel? Like that type of stuff. Add a veteran to a young coach at the time, Joe Mazzulla, at the age of 34. And this was still going to be a question, even if Ben Sullivan and company were coming back. But now it's even more important. And I really like the idea of bringing in Sam Cassell. Obviously, the ownership group likes it because there is familiarity with the organization, and then you think about it, this guy's been around the NBA as an assistant for a long time now, Sam Cassell. Of course, we all know him from the 08 championship, but he won a championship with the Rockets as well, and he's a very established NBA assistant coach. Since 09, he was with the Wizards, then he goes to the Clippers with Doc, and he's with Philly with Doc as well. Now, I don't agree with everything, of course, Philadelphia does, but in terms of the tactics and all the blown leads that Doc Rivers had as a coach, but not blaming Sam Cassell for that. I just think it was important to get a guy that had an established resume as a really good NBA point guard, just like the Damon Stoudemire situation, right? Where Damon Stoudemire, that just came out of nowhere in the middle of the season. And I don't blame the Celtics. Like they can't predict that Damon Stoudemire is going to get offered the Georgia Tech job. So, and Damon Stoudemire is sort of like the Marcus Smart Whisperer, if you will. So now being able to go out there and get Sam Cassell, who had a longer track record, if you will, as an assistant coach in the NBA. I like this for the Celtics, and obviously he can help with the guards when it comes to that as well. But just the fact that he has all this experience coaching in the NBA, it certainly is going to be major for Joe Missoula to just have that guy to be able to lean on. And Sam Cassell brings leadership as a point guard in the NBA. He brings experience as an assistant head coach, and he brings name value. Everybody here knows who Sam Cassell is. So I think this is a really nice move by Brad Stevens and the Celtics. And I think one of the things you see here is they realize the importance of having a guy with that sort of NBA pedigree, similar to Damon Stoudemire. So I really like this for the Celtics. After the weekend did not start well with the coaching news, right? These guys go to email staff, but I really like this right here. All right, so that's why I got on the Celtics for today. A lot more on the Celtics, of course, as we're now entering the offseason. But I do want to chat some Red Sox in just a little bit. We'll chat with Ann Kundal from SoxProspects.com. But first, you can hit a homer with a $5 Dinger Tuesday on FanDuel Sportsbook. Each Tuesday, all customers will get $5 in bonus bets for every home run hit by both teams when you place a $25 to hit a home run wager on MLB games. And the best part about Dinger Tuesdays is even if your bet loses, FanDuel will pay you $5 for every home run. So one of the guys I'm looking at coming up on Tuesday night is Masataka Yoshida. You got a righty on the mound. Yoshida has been one of the best hitters in Major League Baseball. He is mashing right now. So I like Yoshida to hit a home run coming up on Tuesday. There's no better place to bet on America's pastime than on America's number one sportsbook. Head on over to your FanDuel account or download the FanDuel Sportsbook app by going to fanduel.com slash pike to pick your home run hitter. That's fanduel.com slash pike. 21 plus in select states. Bonus issued as non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Max bonus $25. Restrictions apply. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. one 789 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700 or visit KS Gambling Help. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana, gambling helpline MA. org, or call eight hundred three two seven five zero five zero for twenty four seven support in Massachusetts. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org org in Maryland, one eight seven eight hope and Y or text hope and Y four six seven three six nine in New York, one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming, or visit www1800 eighteen hundred in West Virginia. All right, coming up next, we'll chat with Ann Cundell, Director of Scouting for SoxProspects.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from SoxProspects.com, the Director of Scouting, Ann Cundell. And thank you so much, man, for taking some time. I wish we were talking after a better Red Sox game because they just lost again to the race, so they've dropped the first two out of the first three of the series after the big win on Saturday. I was excited after the first win. Huge momentum. You beat them in the first game, but... This was just a horrible loss and for the Red Sox and we'll get into the Little League home run we saw in this game. But Alex Corr after the game said this, quote, the roster is the roster and we have to play better baseball. I'm the manager of this team and defensively, we're not good. We're not. He's definitely not lying about that. They're not good defensively. Ann. No,
1: it's it's uh it's been a it's been a rough. I think it kind of started in the ninth inning yesterday. You know, they, they they fought back to tie that game up in the second game of the doubleheader and then. Obviously, Kenley came in and had a rough ninth inning and then it just spiraled today. And I mean, he's not wrong. Like the defense has been really disappointing. Um, It's kind of crazy that the Yu Chang injury that everyone foresaw being kind of the down the the thing that would kill the defense has happened (laughs) since then. But that's where we're at. You know, up the middle defense is the most important part of the game. And that's the area the Red Sox are really struggling with right now. And I think that one play that you talked about just summed it up really well. Yeah.
0: And, I mean, you think about, too, going back to the fourth inning, you had that play where Turner didn't cover third, so you don't yeah. get the out at third. And then the next play, you get a single to left field. Yoshida kind of bobbles it. So they give a or a Yoshida. That run probably scores anyway. Yoshida, of course, known a lot more for his offense. We'll get into that because he's been great, but obviously not a great defensive player. But the sixth inning is the play that just... That's where Cora is frustrated, right? Where we see Cora, when this play happens, literally takes the jacket off when it's like 46 degrees out. And he's like going around the dugout, walking back and forth because you can tell that he's so irritated. So essentially what happens is you just get like a bouncer through the right side of the infield because Veldez is going to second because the Rays, they do this really well. They put pressure on the defense by they're going to steal second. So the ball goes to Verdugo. Verdugo's like kind of late getting to it. He took a bad route. Yeah, horrible route. And so then he throws it to Valdez. Valdez is offline throwing it home. So the run comes all the way in from first. And then Diaz scored himself on the chopper that he hit to the right side of the infield. He came all the way around because Wong's throw goes way past second base into the outfield. I mean, it's just really, really embarrassing stuff on that specific play. And I think Cora is sort of not frustrated with the roster in it itself. He's frustrated with all the injuries they have, right? Like, I don't think he was taking a shot at high and bloom with the quote after the game. What I think he was saying is, look, this is like kind of who we are. I got to do a better job trying to get these guys going. But there's really not much he can do when you have, we talk about Kike Hernandez, who now has 11 throwing errors on the season. You go back to, the game on Saturday, the first game, he cost your run, or I guess you could say he cost you three runs because the inning extended. He can legitimately, I've seen this, we've seen this with second basemen where they can't throw the ball or pitchers like Lester couldn't throw to first. Yeah. Chuck Knobloch had this back in the day where he couldn't throw it to first. The yips. He, yeah, Kike can't toss it to second. And if you think about that 11 number in terms of the throwing errors, you have one guy, the guy closest to him is at seven. Last year, you had two guys over 11 throwing errors, and that was Javi Baez and Bo Bichette pK is already at 11 throwing errors this season. The Red Sox, as a team, are 26 in defensive run saves at negative 17, 37 errors entering play. And, of course, they had a couple more today. That was tied for the fourth most. But it just getting, it's really irritating to watch just from this perspective, Ian. This is their good offense. They've had moments from a pitching staff perspective, and we'll get into some of the injuries, but they're not good enough to have all these lapses defensively. Now, some of like the play today in the sixth inning, you can clean that up The, the fourth yeah. inning, to some extent, that was fluky. But it just you can't envision this team even getting back to mediocre defensively until you get a bunch of these guys back. And I guess the good news is Duvall is going to be back soon. Maybe that helps you out. But Kike Hernandez can't play shortstop.
1: No, I think that like even when Arroyo's back, you have to consider trying him there. Maybe you put Hernandez in the outfield for the, you know, cause Duvall, I can't think, I don't think he'd come back until Friday. But, it, and the thing is, it, I actually think you can trace a lot of back to defense because you talked about that game, uh, the first game when Hernandez had the two errors, that probably added 20, 30 pitches to Whitlock's pitch total, those two errors. And oh, yeah, the result point. of that is bullpen had to come in earlier. You saw they burned through a bunch of guys in game one. And then we saw game two. They basically ran out of arms like they said that the the only option for the ninth inning was kenley because he said he was good to go like those are the little things and and i think it's something that just kind of highlights the difference between them and the rays right now is the rays they just do all the fundamental things correctly like they might make an error here and there because every team does like that that's baseball but as you said the hit and run where you know yandy diaz hits it and margot is just full steam from first base scores easily Diaz hustles the entire way, gets home too, eventually, because you just never know what's going to happen when the ball's in play. And the Rays are just so good at taking advantage of any little miscue, any lapse in judgment. And unfortunately for the Red Sox right now, they're in a situation where they have guys playing out of position. They have guys who are playing in roles that they're miscast in. Like Emmanuel Valdez is a good, he's a decent hitter against right handed pitching. He's not a good defender at all. Like the, the speed of the game at the major league level is just too much for him right now. But he has to be the starting second baseman, more or less, because. You know, you have three middle infielders on the DL right now. Hernandez probably is best cast in a bench role. Like, let's be honest here. I don't know if he's an everyday type player.
0: Yeah, he can't but hit righties either. I mean, no. he cannot hit righties.
1: No, except he has to be your starting shortstop. Like, at some point, I almost think you have to just say, like, until Yu Chang is back, we might have to just play Pablo Reyes at shortstop because at least he is reliable defensively there. And yeah, as you said, like, it's just until the guys get back from injuries and you kind of have to just wait and see, because as Corey said, you're stuck with this. This is this is the team that they have. Like, if you look at the 40 man roster right now, they don't have a single 40 man uh, hitter on, on the AAA roster right now because they're all injured. Like, uh, they they put William Abreu and David Hamilton, who are the two minor league um, position players, on the DL. So the only guys coming are going to be the injury guys coming back. It's not like there's some you know big prospect in AAA right now ready to help. So they got to get those guys back quick, and hopefully they can get back up to speed. You know, within the next week, two weeks, because otherwise it's it's going to be a, it could be a tough stretch. And with a team that's fighting for every win, you know, you can't give away games like they did today.
0: Yeah. And you know what? One of the most frustrating things is we were chatting about this before we started recording is Trevor's story. And I know a lot of people were frustrated with his first season as member of this organization, but he does bring elite defense. And. We know that he would have brought elite defense to shortstop this year, right? As long as he was healthy, we found out he wasn't healthy, but you go back the stretch from 16 to prior to coming to the Red Sox, he was third among shortstops in defensive runs saved. Like he is a really good defensive player. And on top of that, he's a really good run producer. Like you can look at the raw numbers last year and they weren't great, but he was one of the Red Sox best hitters in terms of actually driving and runs. Like he was very good when it comes to that. So that loss is just so massive for them because what we found out is Kike Hernandez can't fill in, and then the, my, I'm sort of aggravated. Not in term like I, I'm not blaming Arroyo for this, but this is a guy that had an opportunity. Hey, can you be an everyday player? I never thought he could because going back to the Kike thing, he can't hit righties either. But. At least he was a solid defender and Arroyo for a guy that is supposed to be utility guy. The problem is he's never available. No, he's not, always hurt. He's he goes back hurt. to his minor
1: league day. He was once they, he was a top prospect coming up with the giant system and he's just never been able to consistently stay on the field, which at some point you have to consider a skill. And that's just it's yeah. just a skill that he doesn't have. And yeah, I mean, it's 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 what happens like this. I, it does all trace back to the story thing, because when you when you if you look at the whole, whole offseason. You, they obviously went into it, assuming story would be the every, everyday shortstop. And then he has that injury when he starts ramping back up for throwing and things they kind of, you know, the moves start from there. You can trace them all back. And until he gets back, it's kind of just going to be like a patchwork job there because that, that's that's kind of where they are. You know, you're not going to go out and make a big move for a guy because you assume he's going to be back healthy. And so you're kind of stuck with what you have. And unfortunately for them, that position is the one that's probably cost them the most so far this season.
0: Yeah. And you're not going to make a big move, too, because you paid the guy a lot of money, right? So you need you need to get him on the field eventually because you paid him that big contract and the other component to it. That's why you bring in a guy like Mondesi, who is also hurt. So the time you need a guy to fill in for. Trevor's story, Mondesi's not available. So I did want to get to this because the other unfortunate news that we got late this week is Chris Sale. So shoulder inflammation he's dealing with. And he said he doesn't believe that he needs surgery, but still said that he needs more tests, which this is sort of an interesting part to me. I don't know what other tests you got in your shoulder besides the MRI and the cat scan. So I would guess I don't know this. I'm not a doctor, but. Maybe the inflammation situation, like it was too inflamed where they couldn't get an accurate read. Maybe he needs to get another another MRI. I don't know exactly what the tests are. Just he said he's going to know later on in the week. Good thing is he says he doesn't need surgery. With Chris Sale, I'm not going to hold my breath here. I'm knocking on wood that he's okay because, and we finally saw he was back to being, I'm not saying peak vintage Chris Sale, but he was pretty good. He was dominant. You look at him since the start of May, seventh in strikeout rate, 31.3%. Strikeout to walk ratio was 27%, which was third. 0.91 whip, 12th. The hard hit rate, the ball's off to bat 95+, plus, 29.2%, which that's an elite number as well. That was third during that stretch. So, ton of soft contact. The swing and miss stuff was back. The velocity was back. And the thing that concerns me here is the Red Sox obviously need him. They need Chris yeah. Hill to be starting every five days for this team. And the other component to this, I was looking at Brendan Woodruff from the Brewers. Mm-hmm. He he's on the sixty day with shoulder inflammation. So yeah. even if Chris sails right, like, hey, I don't need surgery, which I mean, I'm sure that's what the doctors are telling them, like, hey, we don't think you're gonna need surgery, that's great, but he may still miss a significant amount of time, and by the time maybe he's back and he's revamping up, he may not be ready to go. Like, I I don't think that it's out of the realm of possibility that he's done for the year. We don't know this. I'm just saying it does it feels like to me this is going to be a lengthy absence for Chris.
1: Yeah, I it I mean, anytime they're scheduling a press conference to discuss the health of a player I, I generally it worries me and you know shoulders shoulders are really tricky like you know with with the elbow the tommy john surgery it's straightforward with shoulders as you woodruff is a great example like he went on the deal i think after his first start and and there's been nothing since then like yeah and i think it's just now with sale it's just you kind of have to you can't really you don't know what you're gonna firm so you can't really count on him like you're looking at the rest of the rotation and the problem was that what the rotation really needed was someone pitching like sale. Like he's not an ace anymore, as you said, but he's someone who the way he was pitching the last month is good enough to be like a number two, num- a high end number three starter, like probably more than number two starter. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing this team needed was someone that you knew that every five, six days they were going to get the ball. they were going to give you six innings. They were going to give you two, you know, one to two runs, keep you in the game, miss bats, save the bullpen. And he was doing that for a stretch. And now you're back in the situation where. You know, the onus falls on guys like Brian Bayo is going to have to step up and be like a number two number three starter, which I don't think he's that at this stage in his career. Whitlock is going to have to step up. Like the rotation just makes so much more sense when it has someone like sale pitching in it. And now it's, you know, you're relying on guys who with really tr- questionable health records and packs in. um like I like Cutter Crawford a lot. I hope he gets a chance in the rotation going forward. But he even has had his injury issues. Like it's just a lot of question marks, and it just it made so much more sense with Sale in there anchoring it for that month. And we saw how the rotation was carrying them for a stretch there when the bats kind of went quiet. And now it's back. You, I think you look in the last like nine, ten games. I don't think they've had a starter get out of the fifth inning. So yeah, or pitch into the sixth inning, I should say. So it's just, it's 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 tough when you have the defense is struggling, the starting pitching is kind of having some issues. The bullpen is getting overused and we saw, you know, as this series kind of thing sums up the issues they're having with the bullpen where they have a couple guys who you don't really know what you're going to do with them, like Kluber. So it's just it's just a weird roster construction right now. And until they can kind of figure out these injuries and figure out what they're going to do in the rotation, it's going to be kind of a strange. It's going to be a mismatch, um, kind of mixing and matching everything for the next couple of days, it seems.
0: Yeah, and just like on a bigger level, it was fun again. Watching Chris Sale yeah. was fun. Like you wanted to go to the ballpark and watch Chris Sale pitch. And unfortunately, now it was we're- like appointment
1: TV. You had to turn yeah. it whenever Sale was throwing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm not saying it was like the same when he remember when he first got here in 2017 and it was like, this is the first time we've had this type of diet. Not that they haven't had good pitchers, the Lester's of the world, et cetera. Josh Beckett, but there's
1: a it's a different level. It's yeah. like you, there's an as you said, it I think excitement is a great word to use. Like when you know you're going to go out there and the, the guy's pumping 97, 98 and, you know, limbs are flying everywhere and he's just blowing it by hitters like that's fun to watch. And that was what sale brought to the table for, you know, that month stretch and it. It did make you think it was like, is he actually back? Like, this is a massive development if he is because he's still, what, 32, 33. It's not like he's, you know, that old. So but now it's we're back to square one again. And it's kind of, yeah. you know, wait and yeah.
0: see. And you get those swings where guys are actually getting hit with the and the back foot. and They're <laughs> swinging at his pitches. It's just nasty. So it sucks. I mean, we'll see. Hopefully we get good news later on this week. But. If I was a betting man, which I am, thanks to our friends at FanDuel, I'd probably go the opposite on that one in terms of the over under whatever it is on when Chris Sale is going to be back. I would take the over on that. All right. So you mentioned Bayo; he's going to start on Monday, and unfortunately for the Red Sox, now since you had the postponement on Friday, McClanahan, one of the nastiest pitchers in the game, which is another bad break for the Red Sox. Uh, for the Sox, <laughs> he gets to start for Tampa on Monday against Bayo, but. The pitch count sort of got away from Bale last time out against the Reds where he had some command issues. Despite not having a lot of walks, he had some issues. But you look at the last six starts and the launch angle, 2.4 degrees, which is fourth in Major League Baseball during that stretch among starters. So everything's on the ground. The ground ball rate is at 60.2%, which is second. Now, that is second behind only Logan Webb. So he's getting a ton of ground balls, and this is what we've seen throughout his short tenure here. He does have the command issues at times. The strikeout is just 23.2%, which with the stuff being that good, you would expect the numbers to be better. But I envision some of that is the command stuff. But so what have you made of him so far this season? And to you, where does he sort of profile? Is he a two? Is he a three? I mean, he doesn't appear to like command. I don't know if he'll ever be a bona fide number one guy in the rotation. But what do you see as the most likely outcome for Bayo?
1: I think a mid rotation guy is the realistic outcome and, and it, it does come down to the command and you know, the stuff can be as good as it as, as his is, but if you're not commanding it, you're still going to, your pitch counts are going to get elevated. You're going to give up some of those weak contacting. I think we saw a lot of it last year where like, his command would be off. Hitters can't square him up, but they'll get on base because it's like a fluky ground ball or like infield. Didn't he have like the highest infield single rate of any pitcher in baseball last year or something? Yeah.
0: And, and I've told this story on the pod before, but there was a game last year against Seattle where I'm not kidding you. There was three of them in one inning against the Seattle Mariners three times in one inning. It happened to Brian Bale. I'm pretty sure Seattle. I remember the game. I, was no, there. I, I think
1: I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And But it's, you know, if you're not consistently in command, you're going to have those outings like the Reds one. And I do think, though, that his strikeouts might also be kind of kept down a little bit because he does generate so much weak contact. Like for him to work deeper into games, that actually might be more beneficial if he yeah. is, you know, if he's able to, you know, get those cheap outs early in at bats with his, his sinker or change up, whatever he's throwing. Um, whatever he's thrown in that situation, then that could allow him to go, you know, six innings, which I think I would personally think is more important than if he's, you know, striking out six, seven, eight, eight guys in a six inning start. I'd rather him go six innings than have those high K numbers. Obviously, both would be ideal, but you have to give a little with someone with his command profile. But I, I think that, yeah, a mid rotation starter is a very realistic outcome. And I think that the stuff we've seen, he, he can do it. Like he's already showing that ability. It's just now finding that consistency from outing to outing. And obviously staying on the field and staying healthy because he has had you know he came into the year with some injury issues and he had to some inconsistencies with those first couple of starts this season
0: yeah I love watching him pitch too it's such like an easy 97 98 that he can throw right I mean you see guys yeah. like even like our old friend Nate of pitching really well in Texas right now AL pitcher <laughs> of the month walk NL pitcher of the oh, month but that wait, was wild <laughs> yeah I was like oh boy where can you get guys like this but anyway just speaking about like Nate like when he was throwing 100, it looked hard, right? Like, it didn't look like it was easy. Like, no, that was not lot. effortless. There was yeah. effort there. Yeah, there was a lot of effort there, the grunting and all that. But with Bayo, it's like, and I'm not comparing the players. It's just, it's different. Like, that's how, and again, not comparing the players, that's how Pedro was, right? Where he was throwing, where he could dial it up to 97, 98. It just, it was so easy. And that's what Bayo has. So I love him as a talent. I just hope that, yeah, hopefully these command issues can be better. And he can be a number two, number three for a long time for this Red Sox organization. So Tanner Houck starts today, fourth inning, gets himself in a little bit of trouble. Obviously, the defense didn't help there. But on the season, fourth inning, 390 opponents batting average, 413 opponents on base percentage entering Sunday, 463 slug, 876 OPS, the ERA 630. And we've gone through this time and time again, the second time through the order with Tanner Houck. Long-term for him, I've always sort of believed that he was a reliever. Like, we're comparing the two guys. Like, these conversations over the past few years, like Whitlock and Tanner Hulk, I've always said, hey, Whitlock has a chance to be a good starter. If the slider can be consistent, we know how good the changeup is. And the changeup is sort of getting back. He had the fade back on that the last couple times out. Where Now, the changeup was inconsistent on Saturday, but it was much better two starts ago compared to pre-IL, his changeup and his fastball. Like... The velocity had never been closer together, which is obviously a bad yeah. thing. Now that is sort of widened itself out. But with Tanner in particular, I know right now it's a necessity for him to be on the rotation. I just and I don't think he's a starter.
1: No, I agree. I mean, I've I, I've been saying this since they brought him up. And I do think it's part of him, as you said, as necessity, they just they don't have they don't have guys there right now, like with the injuries to sale and some other players. You're kind of you're stuck with him in the rotation. And. We, we we've seen, I, I don't know how many times we need to see it. Like, he's going to have good starts. He'll have, you know, once every couple of weeks, he's going to have that outing where he goes six innings, he only gives up two runs, but you just can never count on that consistently. And we saw it again today where, you know, he gets into trouble, where he starts nibbling, can't throw strikes, ends up, you know, what I think he walked for today, I want to say in five innings yeah. or four innings. He has those issues. And then the second time through the order, like, it's just when you're, they can you know in a given day what pitch is working for him and we saw with that angel start that weird one where he basically never threw his fastball he was just throwing sliders like if you can eliminate a pitch from him it's just so much easier to hit doesn't matter how good your slider is if if they can just lay off that they know that like hey we're just you know this is we're honing in on one pitch MLB hitters are gonna hit that like the scouting reports get out and I just think he's someone that could be really effective in that multi-inning bullpen role like up to the point where I I do wonder if like his value would be more there than it is in the rotation. Cause he, he, I give him credit for this He stayed, he stayed healthy so far this year. He's, you know, he's getting, taking the ball every five days, but at some point, like, I think he has like a 60 RA in his last 25 innings, 26 innings or something like some way you kind of have to realize he is what he is. And, you know, you have to decide is, is it more valuable to have a guy who can go, you know, three, four, maybe he'll give you five innings. In a start, or is it a guy who could be a potential like shutdown two inning reliever? And yeah. for me, ideally, it would be the latter. Um, I think that we've seen, you know, there are certain guys whose stuff just plays better in the bullpen. Josh Winkowski, I think, is a great example this year. We've seen him transition to the bullpen. He couldn't miss bats at all as a starter. Yeah. Um, gave up a ton of hard contact. He goes to the bullpen, velo ticks up. He's now sitting like, you know, 97, 98 with a sinker. He's not striking his he's not striking out a ton of guys, but he's still, you know, he's getting about one kick, one an inning like round there. And it just looks a lot better there. looks more comfortable. And I think Hal could have a similar effect where he moves to the bullpen and he could be a really shut down guy because as we've seen, like his first two innings, usually for the most part, are just dominant. Like he's one yeah. of the best pitchers in baseball by if you just look at their first and second inning metrics, it's just after that when things start to fall apart.
0: Yeah, it's crazy, too, because like we saw in the game on Sunday, it he loses it so quickly. Yeah, just like he goes from looking like one of the best pitchers in the sport to a guy that has no idea where the ball is going. He'll just completely no. lose command and then. You get he's missing middle middle or he's walking the ballpark. It's just unfortunate. How it just unravels. And I do think he could be a, an elite reliever. And there's nothing wrong with having a guy that can give you two, three innings when he comes out of the bullpen and be consistent when it comes to that. Oh, by the way, just a small note on the game on Sunday. Edwin Jimenez behind the plate. I don't know if I've oh, ever God. seen an umpire that, was that bad. bad. That's that was one so of the worst bad. I've ever seen. This guy missed at least like. In the first three innings, he missed at least eight. Like, and I'm not saying it was like bad for the rest. It was bad for both teams. It was bad for the race, too. At one point, Kevin Cash was just talking to I believe it was Yandi Diaz. Yeah, and, the was. and they're just like looking at each other like, what is that? That was I was tweeting him out because I was following it on my phone like the um, baseball savant. I always have that up like with the yeah, strike yeah. zone. They weren't even close. Like, no. he was way off.
1: Well, and the thing that's so frustrating is when you watch a performance like that is that there was one the one i remember is emmanuel valdez and i think there were two runners on and the first pitch was six inches off the plate and he called it a strike and then the next two pitches weren't close and he called the balls even though they might have been closer than the first pitch that was a strike and instead of a 3-0 count it's a 2-1 count and like right obviously that single pitch didn't didn't isn't like what led to a strikeout or a walk but that first pitch of the at-bat you know can be just as pivotal to setting the tone for the at-bat and so if he's ahead 3-0 it just changes the complete like it could change the outcome completely and i believe he ended up striking out in that bat things like that, that really change it and actually can really impact the outcome. And it it, may, it takes me back to like, obviously I go to a lot of AAA games and I really like the challenge system. I think it should be at the major league level, hopefully next season, because if you have that, like that's not going to happen, you know, things like that get challenged immediately. It takes five, 10 seconds. You see a nice big graphic on the video board that shows you like the Hawkeye system in tennis. And then boom, we're on, you know, you keep playing and it's just a day like this that that can't come soon enough to the major league level because I think that's the next big change they need to bring.
0: That would be so cool too to like see it up on the screen and the crowd no, great. starts. Yeah, the crowd starts going nuts when it's like when if core challenge and got it right.
1: Well, and it's it's smart the way they have it designed is each team gets three challenges and if you're successful you keep it. And so you actually have to be a little strategic about it. It's like, you don't want a guy like going up there, you know, like a 2-0 pitch in the first inning with no one on base and two outs, like challenging it. Cause if you're wrong, then it's like, you lose one of your challenges. And so it is interesting watching, you know, the hitters have to think about like, I know I saw a team and like a hitter challenge and the coach looked at him like, what are you doing? Like that just, that's just (laughs) not worth it at all. But then obviously there are other ones where it would change the outcome in a pivotal situation. And instead of it being, you know, 2-1, it'll be 3-0 and Valdez has a much better chance of hitting there.
0: All right, so I want to get to Tristan Casas because, obviously, slow start to the season. A couple of hits on Saturday in the second of the two games. Contact mm-hmm. has been much better since the start of May. Like, the hard hit rate, the ball's off, the bat 95 pluses, north of 46%, at least entering Sunday. We know about the walks. He's still walking. He does that. And he doesn't have that same swagger he did at the beginning of the year. When he At the beginning of the season, when he was getting pitches that were, like, out, he'd just say it. He'd be like, out! Until, until yeah. the, or up. Like, I loved when he did that. But... yeah. So where are you on Casas? Because it it looks like that it's almost one of these trust the process things, right? He walks a lot. He has a lot of loud contact. It just sometimes, Ian, I would like him to be a little bit more aggressive in terms of he's always working counts. And I get it. That's sort of his profile. But every once in a while, it's like, man, you got to swing at some of these pitches early in the count. And he takes a lot of two strike, like called strike threes. A ton of them, I feel like.
1: Yeah, it it is. He is one of those hitters that, sometimes their passivity can impact can hurt them and i do agree i would like to see him being a little more aggressive i think he's gotten to that in this this little stretch um like since since the beginning of may his numbers i mean obviously his full season numbers are pretty bad so but like since the beginning of may's 260 340 450 like a little yeah. higher than that but just rounding there but like so the numbers are they're getting better it's starting to tick back up and he's obviously still be, gonna get killed overall because he was terrible in april um result wise but yeah i think you just have to trust the process here um he, he's, you know, he's obviously, as you've seen, he, he's he's a thinker, you know, he he's going up there, he's got his plan and he's going to stick to it. And I, I think that kind of opening up and loosening up a little bit would be good for him. You know, if, if you get a pitch, you can hit and you can drive, you're a big guy, you're a power hitter. You should try to drive the ball. You know, you can hit the ball really hard. Like we're seeing it hit his, his exit velocities, even with the slow start, he's, I think he's like 87th percentile for max averages, you know, 81st percentile, his barrel rates really high. Like there's definitely some bad luck. There's definitely some, he's a little too passive in getting in trouble, but I think that, yeah, you just, you just have to wait it out because I think eventually it's going to kind of level out and maybe this season is not going to be the one where he has that, you know, 270 year with 35 home runs, but I think there is a chance that eventually he can get to that, that result. Like this year, it might only be 220, 230, but the power is legit. Um, The approach he's going to get on base at a high clip. And I think, yeah, you just have to like, he's someone that, if you truly believe in your valuation as, as an anchor for your lineup, you just have to play through it. You know, you, you know, you don't want to risk, um, you know, draining his confidence or doing anything with that. You you just throw him out there every day. You may be limited against lefties a little more, especially um, once they have like Duval back probably is easier. Yeah. You can get Duval in there. Turner can play a little more first base against lefties. But I think that, you know, I like the, the track he's on in the sense that he had that rough April and he started to improve in, um, in May and now into June. And, now it's just about, you know, finding consistency, game in and game out, game out and um, just getting back to the, to a level that, you know, he's comfortable with and, and finding that happy medium between being passive and being aggressive and attacking the ball.
0: Yeah. And I love the fact, to your point, that they've been really good keeping him in the lineup like they yeah. could they could have said, hey, let's send him down to AAA. We've seen that before. There's no reason for that. Like this no. is the division is loaded. This is a pretty good offensive, a really good offensive team. We went through the flaws defensively. And now with the Chris Sale injury, even more so like this does feel sort of like a bridge year where you can still be competitive. But it does seem like in some sense it's sort of a bridge season. I'm not saying you can't make the playoffs. I'm just saying like Tristan Casas is really important to the future of the organization. So he should be playing pretty close to every day. So I can't envision them like you said. I mean, get him out there when there's a tough lefty. Get somebody else in the lineup. I mean, Turner can play some first too. maybe not have maybe you don't want him in the, at third. Yeah, the
1: defense isn't great. but <laughs> Yeah, the
0: defense is bad. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, the Turner's a really professional hitter. So you can do more things when Duvall gets back to, to your points. I love that they're giving Casas a long rope. I think he deserves it. All right. So let's get to some really good news. Marcelo <laughs> Meyer now up in triple A and double A, double A, excuse me, yep. double A Portland. He had the slow start, but then he has the three hits on Sunday. I was Mm -hmm. referencing the other day when they brought him up. Like the power numbers this year have been much better than they were previously. I'm sure part of that is he's growing he's still a really young guy growing into his body. So uh, if you're putting an ETA on him, I'm guessing it's what, somewhere in twenty twenty four, maybe the end of twenty twenty four. And do you have any comps? Like, because this is sort of the guy that we've all been waiting for, and we're hearing all these great things about him, we're seeing all the highlights of him, like how good is he and what's the ceiling for him?
1: Yeah, he's. I mean, I, I've been really impressed with the progress he's made this year. Um, he definitely came into the season noticeably stronger. Um, he's hitting the ball and just much harder than last year. Like his hard hit rate, this is prior to his promotion in Greenville, but last year is 27%. This year it's 40, 43.4% in Greenville. So wow. massive jump there. Yeah. 90th percentile exit velocity uh, up from 101.6 to 105.9. So he's hitting the ball harder, more consistently, which is that's exactly what you want to see. Um, he's definitely made gains with his bat speed. I, I know that, um, that that's something they've been really working on with a lot of the guys is doing like all the drive line stuff and the weighted bats and getting them to get quicker to the ball. And he's someone who's definitely taken a step forward there. And all that has come with an increase in his contact ability in the zone. So that's, you know, he checked all the boxes in Greenville this year, which is why he got that promotion. And he's by far the best prospect in the system. I don't think that's, that's, you know, he's a, he's a top 10 guy uh, nationally for a reason. And I think 2024, like late next season is probably the realistic one. Like you you obviously want to be aggressive and you can't rule anything out with guys who I think he's kind of on that level where you can't, like, he could, just go nuts the rest of the season, and then in June of next year, it's like, well, what are we doing here? Like, he's hitting, you know, three hundred and Triple A, and shortstop is still or second base, whatever, wherever he's going to end up playing is still a question mark. Um, but like comp wise, I'm not a big fan of comps, but like rhyme Brandon Crawford, like a really really good defender who can hit 25 home runs and you know hit like 270 280 with a high OBP, like something like that, maybe like. You're talking about a guy who's got a chance to be a a 60 player, which is that's a a borderline all star, like consistent, like all star type talent. And, you know, he's he's the type of player the system hasn't had in a while. You know, you probably have to go back to like the Devers days that when there was what Devers, Moncada, Benintendi, like that crew. That's the last time they had a guy with his type of ceiling. And it's just exciting when, when you see a player with this much promise, and obviously he was really, they they took him fourth overall, which is just the fact that he got to fourth, it shows the MLB draft has some major issues, but yeah. um, that's a, that's a different story, but they got fortunate, you know, they had a, they had a high pick the year he came out and he's just done nothing, but get better. And the defense has been really impressive this year. Um, he's really fluid at shortstop. He's got a huge arm, which is nice to see, you know, he's comfortable making that throw from, from deep over towards third base range up the middle. And I think that there, he does a lot of the intangible things really well too. Like he's bilingual. He really gets along well with his teammates. Um, and he's just, he's consistent, you know, you know where you're getting him from night in and night out. And as we kind of talked about, you know, there, there are a lot of guys who the season can be a grind and he definitely tailored off a little bit at the end of last season, but to see him go in the off se- to go out this off season, get stronger Getting better physical condition and come in and just play the way he has this year is really encouraging. And and I I like the way the Red Sox are being aggressive with him. You know, I think in the past they might have given him a little longer in um, in Greenville, but you know they saw 164 PA's this year and were like, "That's enough. Let's get you to the next step." And the jump right now from high A to Double A pitching wise is pretty substantial. So um, the fact that they felt he was ready and that he's already gone up there and he's got three hits and I've seen some of his bat ball data. He's already hitting the ball extremely hard again. Like. 90th is already is higher already. I think it's like 106 point something now. So, yeah, it's it's just all everything is trending up with him. And it's it's a really exciting development for the Red Sox because they really having a homegrown type of player like him is something they've been missing for the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, I, I can't wait to see him continue to progress. But I mean, it's it's really amazing, too. I was talking about this the other day, just how first of all, to your point about the MLB draft, like we know there's issues there. But secondarily, the fact that everything that had to happen for the Red Sox to get to four, right? Like yeah. all these guys, Devers has to be out of shape, right? And have a really bad season. JD going to be pissed about his video. He can't watch the video. <laughs> Erod, myocarditis, doesn't have yeah. a single start. So and Ron Renike managing the team, not Alex Cora, because he's suspended. So just to get to four and get well, this Well, then guy. remember
1: at the end of the season, didn't they win like two of their last three games or something? And oh, almost, yeah, they almost got out of that spot. Like, yeah. Well, and then it also helps that like the next year, the Tigers fell in love with a high school pitcher who I don't think he's pitched this year and he barely pitched last year. Like they just they got really lucky with a guy falling to them. And, you know, sometimes it just happens to work out for you. And in this situation, yeah, everything came together and they ended up with a guy who has among you know the highest ceiling they've had on a position player prospect in several years.
0: Yeah. And our old friend Ben Charrington took Henry, uh, Henry Davis, right? The yep. catcher from Louisville with the first would,
1: overall pick. Yeah. He just got promoted, but he, and he said it well, but like, yeah. it, what do you, are you going to, would you rather have a catcher or a shortstop? Like the answer is yeah. a shortstop. It's so, <laughs> yeah. It's this. And this is the hardest thing. in with the MLB draft is, you know, you don't get a chance to draft like him, guys like him for the most part, unless you're in those top five picks. Like right. talents like, like the no doubt talents, where when you see it immediately, like, yeah, I get it. Um, those guys, they they tend to go early on, especially with the new draft slotting rules. And yeah, as you said, like they got very fortunate that, that was the year they were up there because I you know, you don't plan on picking fourth ever if you're the Red Sox.
0: All right. Yeah. So what about Shane Drohan? Because really good in double A before the promotion, strikeout numbers I think were north of twenty-eight percent. You guys have them ranked at socksprospects.com fifth in the organization. What do you make of Drohan so far this season? And what do you think the ETA is there? I've
1: been really impressed with the step forward he's taken. Obviously, triple A has been a, a bit of an adjustment, which which is understandable. Like the level of competition you're getting at triple A is just a completely different animal. Like we were talking about earlier, he faced Louisville today. He faced Joey Votto, um, Ellie De La Cruz, Christian encarnacion Strand. De la Cruz is probably the top prospect in all minor league baseball. And strand is Strand's another really good hitting prospect, and Joey is a big leaguer. And then yeah. the rest of the lineup, you know, they have a bunch of ex big leaguers. Like that's what you're getting at triple-A, and I, I think that was a good step for him because he he just was dominating double-A, and it's come with – he he was drafted. He was kind of like a raw – had some command issues, but he was a two-sport guy in high school as a quarterback. Um, You know, there was you, – you project him to add some velo as he gained in the system, and then it, that that finally kind of has come to fruition this year. Uh, his velocity jumped, I think, almost two miles an hour on average. He's up to like 92 um, he's averaging 93 miles an hour in triple or 93 miles an hour in double A, 92.5 in triple A, granted it's a much smaller sample size. So that jump from last year was like 91, 90.7. So he took a massive step forward of his velocity. He's added a new cutter this offseason, which has given him another weapon, um, another pitch that's been pretty effective for him. And, you know, he's a four pitch guy, good change up. That's his best pitch. And, you know he looks more like a starter and in a system that we've talked about a lot that that has struggled to develop starting pitching prospects he's looks like the most promising one they've had in several years and if he pitches well like i don't he has to get added to the 40 man this offseason so if he forces the issue i wouldn't be surprised if we see him at the end of this season probably not as a starter because of the innings restrictions Mm -hmm. more maybe in a relief role but more likely we're talking about someone who you know maybe enters next season as like the sixth starter seventh starter um He's, he's pretty close. I mean, he's 24 years old. He's in AAA. And they just they don't have a lot of other guys like him. You know, like Brian Mata has gotten hurt, um, unfortunately, again. And he's really and Brandon Walters really struggled with the adjustment to AAA this year. So he's kind of taken over that mantle as the top pitching prospect. And it's now just about him finding that consistency at AAA that he showed at Double A.
0: Yeah, what's Mata dealing with a shoulder thing now?
1: Yeah, he's shoulder. I think it is shoulder inflammation, actually, also. Oh, geez. Um, so just, and, just what and you he, want to hear. Yeah, and he was, I mean, he was having a really rough start to the year. He was throwing really hard, but he was, I think he had more walks than innings pitched, more walks than strikeouts. Like his just control was just way off this year. And it, it, they're in an interesting spot with him too, because he's out of options after this year. So he's going to be on the MLB team to start next year if he's still with the organization. And I don't know what he's shown right now that you would be comfortable pitching him at the major league level. So it's, it's the drohan development is very important for that reason. They needed it. They, they've needed that homegrown pitching prospect. And we're seeing like the importance of that around baseball, like the Dodgers have been just killed by injuries, but they just keep bringing up these guys left yeah. and right. Like the, the guardians are having the same thing there. You know, Logan Allen comes up, Tanner Bibby comes up. Um, the Rays today, Taj Bradley, we saw like developing your own pitching prospects is really important for roster construction. And drohan has taken that step forward where it's not the high ceiling. Like we're not talking about a guy who's going to be like, even probably a three is more like that back end four or five range. But if you can get a homegrown four or five who can give you, you know, 160, 180 innings a year with a four ERA, that's a massive win, especially given he was a fifth round pick back in the day. Like it wasn't like he was someone who came in really highly regarded.
0: Right. All right. So, hey, before we let you go, we know like Raffaella flew up last year in terms of the prospect rankings, but in the non, let's say, Meyer-Drohan category here, who's like your favorite guy that you guys have ranked in the top 10? Like, is there a guy you really like and you think maybe you're higher on him than most or something along those lines? Um, I mean,
1: I, I think the guy who's gonna who's generating a lot of buzz right now is Roman Anthony. He was the second round pick or their second second round pick last year, uh high schooler, at, I think he's from Florida. And he's down there in Salem and his numbers don't jump off the page. If you look at the overall numbers there, they're pedestrian. I think he's hitting, you know, like 230, 240. Um, but his batted ball data and like all of the advanced analytical stuff is just off the charts for someone his age. Like he's a 19 year old, he's seen over four pitches of plate appearance. Zone contact rate is 87%, which is among the highest in the entire system. Chase rate is 17%, where like the benchmark that we kind of go off is like 30% for kids his age for guys his age. So that uh, his ninety like his exit velocities are better than MLB average as a nineteen year old. So all that stuff is just off the charts. like, and the one big issue is he hits a ton of ground balls.
4: <laughs> so it's like
1: it's like, is there a swing change here? Is that something that's just going to come as he learns to lift the ball more? as he kind of gets, you know, more physically mature? But, I think there's just there's a lot of exciting stuff going on with him um, and the performance, I think, is going to catch up. And I think he's someone that could definitely break out and be like a top five guy in the system by the end of the season if things break correctly.
0: Yeah, that, that was like the one big Verdugo issue through the years is he's mm-hmm. hitting all these rockets, but they're all on the ground. Oh, yep. I, I know I said last question, but before I let you go real quick, how about Yoshida, man? Like, I, we, it's we crazy, we not like it? Yeah, the bat-to-ball skills, everybody thought it would translate, but man, I still, I can't believe, I can't believe how good this guy is. It's they nailed unreal. it. I mean, unreal. Unreal.
1: They they obviously they put a ton of work into scouting him, and I think you you know you can you can criticize them when that when things don't go right. You got to give them a ton of credit for this one. Like yeah. they were getting. Do you remember how the narrative around they were getting crushed by? They were getting national. mocked.
0: They, you had like oh executives saying that they wouldn't pay close to that, and they yeah. overpaid by like thirty million dollars. Like I mean obviously. he's what
1: second in the AL and hitting like as you said like he's hitting like two sixty since what is it mid April? Um,
0: yeah, well since April. Uh, 420, actually, ironically. Oh. I, I'm not saying he's connected to the 420 thing, but <laughs> 363 average since then, which is second to Luis Arise. So I think Luis Ar- Arise may hit 400 this year. He's right? also
1: an eight- Arise is one of those guys that it makes no sense because if you look at his like savant data, it's not yeah. good at all. He just has a knack for putting the ball where the hitters are, where the fielders yeah, aren't. Crazy. It's a crazy. Yeah, it makes barrel- no sense at all. He doesn't
0: barrel up anything. No. <laughs> he doesn't make a lot of loud contact. But Yoshida, too, 423 on base percentage since the 20th of April. I mean, the guy's been ridiculous this. And it's a great point by you. Like, you have to give them credit. They they were criticized so much by people that have never seen them play. No, they that was were the funniest criticized. part. It's like, yeah. well,
1: why don't we wait? Let's just see. Like, baseball is weird. Like, stuff like this can happen where someone who, you know, everyone can have a differing opinion. It's the same thing with prospects. Like, and I know this well, like, going to a bunch of games, talking to a bunch of people, you're going to get a w- wide range of opinions on players. Like, it's it's not just Yoshida. It's, it's all levels. You're going to get that. And that's what's fun about baseball is you get to see who's right and who's wrong. And it looks like on Yoshida, they were just 100% right. And I I, I honestly, I bet if you ask him that he's completely exceeded their expectations. Like, there's no way they thought he would be one of the best hitters in baseball, which is what he's yeah. been so far this season. Yeah. And him on that contract now just looks like a steal, like $15 50 million a year or something. Like, hey, He's underpaid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if they can figure out the defense, you know, the offense is going to come around. It's just. It's nice it's they got some pieces it's just kind of like putting it together and get everyone healthy. I, I'd just be really interested to see what the team would look like if they had everyone healthy right now. Like if they had Sale back, they had Story back like Yeah. The AL East is insane. The yeah, the AL East is insane and it doesn't help that their division has, you know, four teams that are all going forward who are all really talented with good front offices. But you know, you, you have to play with the hand you're dealt and and it'd be interesting to see how, how, what they could do with all those guys back, but until they are, we're not going to know. And they're unfortunately kind of stuck in this position where they're a last place team that would be in first place in like three other divisions in baseball.
0: Yeah, no, it's a fair point. I mean, it does suck that they have to play in this gauntlet of a division that <laughs> is just ridiculous right now. All right, that is Ian Condell, director of scouting for SoxProspects.com. Ian, thank you so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it. We'll have to do it again down the road. That was awesome stuff. Thanks so much, man. Definitely. Thanks for having me on. I had a lot of fun.
3: This episode is brought to you by Cars.com.
0: All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff. Always enjoy talking about the prospects. And today was a really good day to talk about Marcelo Meyer because, man, that performance by the Red Sox defensively was just an absolute joke. A really embarrassing performance. All right, let's get to a couple of your voicemails That number 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. All right, who's up first?
5: Brian, how you doing? Darren from Chicago. Uh, Thanks for all the great work. Just thinking on on the Celtics loss and then... Still kind of mired in the muck of the Bruins loss as well. Been, been thinking about how much uncertainty there is in, in Boston sports right now. Um, that's really the main thought is that all four franchises are really dealing with a lot of unknown um, and potentially um, big obstacles in, in the search for the next title. Um, you've got the Pats who most likely have a last place roster and don't have an answer at, at starting Q B for the long term. You've got the Bruins dealing with, you know, potentially two or three of their top top players um uh, retiring or moving on and Craigy Bergeron and Marshams near the end. Uh you've got the Celts obviously with the uncertainty of um of Jalen and I think looming issues with the new C B A uh affecting what they can do with role players and then you have the Red Sox in a pretty average spot, uh, you know, close to last place, uh, obviously with some huge upside with, with Devers and, and, and Meyer coming in at some point, but, um, still not necessarily very close to a title. And, um, just got to thinking when, when was the last time that all four sports teams had such uncertainty and were seemingly, uh, so close, but so far. And I I think we got to go back maybe to the turn of the century. Um, you know, obviously the Pats were so good for so long, but you know, uh, maybe back to like 2000 when, you know, Celts were decent, but you know, didn't really have a shot at the title. Socks had Pedro, but were kind of in between, uh, young, dynamic Pedro and, and the success that would come four years later. And then the Bruins were very, very average and, uh, The Pats didn't know what they had yet. You know, Belichick really struggled in his first year. That was the last time I could remember just so much uncertainty uh, with the the squad. So tough, tough place. Still got a lot of optimism with Tatum and Pasta and uh, some great young stars in the city. But uh, a lot of of unknowns. Um, Curious on your thoughts. Thanks.
0: All right, man. Don't be so down. It's all right. I mean, brighter days ahead, man. For the Celtics thing, though, the Celtics are in a good spot no matter what happens with Jalen. This team was just one win away from the finals after going two years ago. You still have Jason Tatum, who it was just his 24-year-old season. Tatum is going to make another steady improvement. We see it happen each and every year. He's already a top 10 player in the game. Now, to be a top five player, and I get technically he's all NBA first team, but he's not a top five player right now. But if he gets to that top and I mean, especially for the postseason, right, if he can get to that top five level, okay, you're really cooking with gasoline. But I feel like the Celtics are in a really good spot despite the whole Jalen situation. So I wouldn't be as down on the C's as it pertains to the Bruins. Major concern there, because I do feel like and I've said this before, and I know there are a lot of these core guys you still have locked up long term in terms of guys that are still reaching their primes when we're talking about the McAvoys of the world and the pastas of the world. So you feel good about those guys. But yeah, this is your last best chance probably to win a cup with the Bergerons and the Krejci's and who knows what happens there long term. So I can totally understand the frustration with the Bruins. It felt like they really were going to do it this year. And unfortunately, they blow that three to one lead. So that's one where I really understand where you're coming from. The Red Sox, we just talked about it for a while here. It's it's an aggravating team right now just because they are so flawed defensively. And this is nothing new in the Bloom era. They're 27th in baseball savant metric in terms of outs above average. They're 27th in Major League Baseball since Bloom took over. They are only two teams have made more errors than they have since Bloom took over. So this has been a constant issue. Remember a couple of years ago, the first base issue, they're throwing anybody at first base. So this has been an issue throughout the Bloom era. I do feel better about some of the guys they have coming up in terms of the minor league system. I don't think the Red Sox are a solid team. They're fine. They just have this massive defensive issue and they're going to get ball back. So I think the Red Sox will at least give us a relatively entertaining summer, although I say all that and we don't know what's happening with the sales situation. As for the Patriots, I'm higher on the Pats than most. Now, you know how I feel about Mac. I'm not the biggest Mac guy in the world, but I do feel like in Steven Ruiz, we had him on a couple of weeks ago. He thinks the Patriots are going to be the number one defense in the NFL. You just got your corner. You have really good pass rushers and the Uches and the Judons of the world I feel good about where this defense is at so I think and look it's it's kind of like we're talking about the Red Sox in the stack division that's the unfortunate part for the Patriots you got the Dolphins you got the Jets and you got the Bills I mean the Jets just got Aaron Rodgers but I feel pretty good about the Patriots I feel a lot better about where we were a year ago with this Patriots team like this defense has the potential to be really really good all right who's up next
2: hi Brian Jason and Beverly here uh, this Chris Dale uh, shoulder injury, if it's remotely serious, is a season-ender for the Red Sox. Don't get it twisted. And the shoulder's been a problem before. When he wore down the end of 2018 and spent a good chunk of 2019 on the I.L., it wasn't the elbow, it was the shoulder. So this is not new by any means. This just highlights the failure of and Bloom to acquire above-average Major League starting pitching, not the stop gaps. Like Corey Kluber, Garrett Richards, Rich Hill, four years on the job. High and Bloom has (laughs) not signed a free agent starting pitcher to a multi-year contract. Meanwhile, guys like Nate Valde were let go, Eduardo Rodriguez was let go, and they've been replaced with nothing. So... The under, whatever book it is at FanDuel, I think I got it 77.5. That under, very, very much in play if Sale cannot come back and pitch like he had pitched the last month or so. Because nobody else in the staff is going to give them innings. You can't have five pitchers in your rotation go five innings or less every turn, even in the modern game. The bullpen is going to get completely destroyed. Who is going to give you length out of this rotation? You know, Paxton's looked so okay so far. But he's only a five inning guy because he, you know, runs a high pitch count. Hulk, with his issues going through the lineup. Whitlock. I mean, I told Whitlock can take the ball. Uh, who else? Um, you know, the point stands. They're screwed unless they have a healthy Chris Dale. And the fact that they went into the season counting on a healthy Chris Dale is an indictment on High and Bloom and the entire plan and organizational philosophy and that's why this team is gonna suck again
0: all right <laughs> i totally forgot about garrett richards remember when garrett richards was mad because he was cold out when he was pitching he was really upset about that and remember garrett whitlock was a massive sticky stuff guy he was a huge spin rate guy so when they had the crackdown on the sticky stuff a couple of years ago, he was really hindered by that. <laughs> He's one of the guys you looked at the RPMs. And it was totally different. He could not pitch without the sticky stuff. He was actually okay in the bullpen for a while, but I totally forgot about the Garrett Richards era. It is crazy to see, and we were talking about this with Ian, about these pitchers, Evaldi and Waka throwing the ball so well. Even, like, Martin Perez last year was so good. Look at Erod, and I know Erod had his issues last year, but Erod had an outstanding season this year so far, so... It is sort of aggravating. The Chris Sale thing, it's massive. They need him. They need a guy at the top end of the rotation. He's paid that way. It's just unfortunate. Like, I feel truly awful for Sale. And I get you excited. Well, Brian, he's making $35 million. How can you feel bad for the guy? Because he wants to pitch. Yeah, I understand it. He's super rich. The Red Sox overpay. I understand all that. But I legitimately feel bad for the guy. I wish he was on the mound. You could tell. The guy looked like he was going to cry the other day because he was so frustrated that Again, he's dealing with an issue, and you make a good point. I mean, he had this situation in 2018. He said he was surprised because he really hasn't had shoulder issues since then, but I'm sorry, like, I can never be surprised when Sale's dealing with some sort of an issue. But yeah, they, the Corey Kluber thing, what a massive flop. What a flop that has been. See, and look, the, the issue today in terms of the Little League home run is not on him, but Kluber, you thought at least, at the very least, he was going to go out every fifth day, give you five innings, and you'd be... It's a 3-2 game or it's a 4-3 game like you're in the game. Kluber can't even do that. He's not throwing strikes anymore. So that has just been a massive flop after trying to recover from the Evaldi thing, which the Evaldi thing was a weird situation. I've told you guys like Evaldi wanted a four-year contract. Red Sox weren't going to give him a four-year, offered him a three-year, and then he goes and takes a two-year with Texas. So that was just a weird dynamic anyway. But man, it it, it is tough to see like looking through the Red Sox, some of the moves that Bloom has made over the past few years as it pertains to the starting rotation in general. It's been tough, man. I mean, there's no way around it in terms of he's had issues in terms of his resume. The big league club that he's putting out there has struggled defensively, and we outline that. And they've also, if you look at the pitching in the Bloom era, 2020 to 2023, 24th in ERA, 19th in FIP, 26th in WHIP. 26 in opponent's batting average, and 26 in hard hit rate. So the pitching has not been great, and it's great, and we talked about it. They've really improved the farm system. That is major for this organization going forward, but the pitching has been an issue at the major league level, and the defense has been an issue at the major league level. All right, who's up next?
4: Hey, Brian, this is Ross in Ocean View, Delaware. I um, wanted to chat for a minute about the trade proposal Bill Simmons put out and that you've been talking about in the show where we trade with Portland to get number three, sending, sending Jalen Brown over there and then taking Scoot Henderson. So I didn't know much about Scoot when you all uh, first started talking about it, but I was watching um, some of his tape this morning, and in particular the game against Wemby and <clears throat> I was just really, really impressed watching him. He has such a mm-hmm. good handle and can really finish at the net. He had multiple finishes over Wemby, who's a foot taller than him. Um, now, great he was blocked a couple times, but just over and over again penetrating and dishing, great passing, and he also has a great NBA body. He's really broad-shouldered. Um, so I think he he might be more NBA ready from a, a physical standpoint than than others. So I really like the fit. I like the idea of refreshing the roster with elite young talent, and I I think it could extend the window. My question and the thing I've been kind of wrestling with is that you know you were talking about Derek White and the need to give him more minutes, and that one of Marcus or Brogdon probably needs to go to make that happen. Um, I I would think that's you know the same case, if not a more of a case with uh, a potential trade get, and getting Scoot. So. I can see the pros and cons to uh, trading Marcus and Brogdon. Marcus, better defense, heart and soul of the team. Um, and I can really see Marcus grooming and teaching Scoot. And I would think you know, keeping, keeping Marcus might keep Tatum happier um, versus losing both Jalen and Marcus at the same time. <clears throat> and then with Brown, you get the better shooting and offense. And I know Scoot's you know, field goal percentage and three-point percentage um, wasn't great and he's still working on his shooting. Um, so I could see a case of keeping Brogdon uh, if you bring in Scoot, just to, you know, f- from a shooting perspective. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on which one of those would go and just any, anything else you have on Scoot. Thanks. Bye.
0: Yeah. So a, a, couple, of good point, a couple of things I want to hit on. Good, some good points there, too. So the thing about Scoot is, for a guard, and he was playing against professionals. He was playing in the G League. He was not playing at the collegiate level he like didn't get his shot blocked at all. I think the total was like seven block shots this year. And a bunch of them came in that one game where Wembenyana got him a couple times. But I love the way and I watched that game where he competed against him. To your point about him, he is fucking jacked. Like this dude has already has an NBA body. Unbelievably explosive. He does have a little bit of a floater game and he can hit mid range jump shots like he looks like, and I know the numbers aren't great there, but it looks like that's a shot that with more reps, et cetera, that that's something that he can certainly develop. So yeah, the, the thing about that trade is you have to know you're getting Scoot. I don't want Brandon Miller, okay? You already have a wing in Jalen Brown, who if Brandon Miller is Jalen Brown, that's a great outcome for Brandon Miller. But Scoot is a totally different thing because he's a different position than Jason Tatum. And he's an elite ball creator. He is an incredible athlete. If I knew that was happening... If I knew I could get Scoot, I would do that deal if I was the Seas. To the other component in terms of, yeah, the guard thing would still stay the same. You'd have to get rid of whether it be, and you would prefer to get rid of Brogdon than Smart. I can understand that. I mean, Brogdon... He had Brogdon and Smart both have limitations. Derek White, I feel like is clearly not. I feel like I know he's the most complete out of those guys. I mean, based on some of the numbers I gave you to start the pod, <laughs> you could make an argument that he was the second most impactful Celtic by the numbers. He was right. <laughs> Way more impactful than Jalen when it comes to that. But anyway, I digress. It does feel like one of those two guys has to go in terms of Brogdon or Smart. And I do feel like there's a personality thing there where Derek White is the least combative, if you will, of those guys. Not that they're like fighting with the coach or anything along those lines, but those guys have bigger egos than Derek White does. So I do feel like it was easier to take Derek White out than take Marcus Smart out. But Brogdon, in terms of the limitations, not a good passer, not a good defender. Like, I would say Smart does more things well than Brogdon. But I feel like if you're looking at a contender, a team may look at Smart and say, hey, we want the defense. We want the leadership. So I do think he would be more appealing Than Malcolm Brogdon even think about last year like that you didn't give up anything for Brogdon really you gave up a first round pick and it wasn't like there was a ton of teams out there that were interested in Malcolm Brogdon so I think you would get more in return for Marcus Smart maybe I'm off on that maybe I'm looking differently than teams across the league are but when Brogdon was on the table last year it wasn't like it cost the Celtics a whole lot to do that all right as always make sure to get those voicemails in great stuff today on the calls that number is 617-396-7172 you can also email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat with you guys in a couple of days.